everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Choose Awareness Podcast. For this one, you'll hear a conversation I recently had with my friend John Hambrick. John works at a local church in the Atlanta area where his role is to create a place for people to have a safe and helpful conversation about faith. He's also an author. He wrote Move Toward the Mess, The Ultimate Fix for a Boring Christian Life, and he co-wrote Black and White, Disrupting Racism One Friendship at a Time with Tisha Hadra. If you haven't read them already, I strongly encourage you to add them to your reading list. Both of them really are incredible books, and they illustrate the importance for us to intentionally get close to people who aren't like ourselves. And that's what I wanted to chat with John about. Getting close to people not like us will almost certainly be uncomfortable, and that urge to remain comfortable is something we all have to fight. And if we're willing to fight it and actually allow ourselves to get uncomfortable, we just might notice that our hearts will soften and we'll be able to love others better. That really was a recurring theme throughout the entire conversation with John. He also talked about what life was like for him growing up. He shared about several people that have affected his life in significant ways, and we discussed the importance and need to lament. I hope you'll appreciate John's thoughts as much as I did. All right, let's get to it. Yeah, so we're recording. John, um, thanks, man, for talking to me. I miss seeing you. I miss talking to you. I have a whole bunch of questions for you, but I've been captivated by this idea of intolerance lately, maybe the past like month or two. And of course, it's an election year, so that might be par for the course. But I feel like I've seen so much from people, whether it's based on political parties or whether it's even race or socioeconomic status. I mean, you name it. We've become such a polarized and divisive society. And maybe it's more noticeable during an election year, but When I started Choose Awareness about six months ago, it was with the mission of raising awareness through the sharing of different perspectives. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just a great contribution to the public discourse. I appreciate that. It's fascinating to me how we as people, we become so convinced that our way is the only way or that our worldview or beliefs are the ones that everyone should prescribe to. And that's not to say... You can't have your own beliefs or opinions, but there's a difference in just assuming that everyone else should also align with you or they have your experiences or needs or perspective. And that's where I think, to me, that's where intolerance enters the picture. But there's so much we can learn. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think there's a lot of fear in our culture right now. And I think fear Mm -hmm. breeds intolerance. I think you're right. Whether it's a fear of not belonging or a fear of sticking out or a fear of not having all the answers or something. I, yeah, I think there. I think there's all of all of that, and I think there's a free floating fear, which is pretty dysfunctional. If you're afraid, you're not really sure what you're afraid of. You just start doing all sorts of dysfunctional stuff. And I think mm. you know. You remember Psych 101 in college or high school? If you're afraid, you kick into the either the fight or flight syndrome. You either mm. you either attack what you're afraid of or you run away from what you're afraid of. And I think intolerance is kind of a a way of attacking what you're afraid of. Mm. And I think there's so much, you know, we can learn from others, their ideas, their life experiences. We can learn from people who aren't like us, you know, and then we can develop empathy for them. I've been so focused on intolerance, I said, for like a few months, but then my cousin said something that he said, yeah, I hear you on the intolerance, but I think the real problem is a lack of empathy And I think he might be right because empathy is that ability to say, okay, 
I want to feel what you feel. I want to see what you see. Sounds like you've been reading Brene Brown. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she has some really good ideas, especially about fear or guilt or shame. She talks a lot about empathy too, saying mm. you were just basically seeing what she said. Mm. And so then I thought, okay, empathy. I think, I think my cousin is onto something and maybe Brene Brown is too. But then I thought, well, empathy isn't enough on its own because empathy that's not to say it's not helpful or powerful. Of course it is. And obviously I'm an advocate for empathy, but it's helpful to us or it, it changes our hearts. It helps us humanize others, but it may not address or help the circumstances of others. To me, that's activism. That's going to take some action. Yep. But then activism on its own may not always produce the best outcomes or Maybe a better way to say it is activism on its own may not produce justice for all because it may not be rooted in what's the desire to do what's best for all people. And that's where I think I landed on this vision of choose awareness to foster empathy while encouraging activism because it's that intersection of those two of empathy it, and activism. Great. It's really pre- smart, Jeff. So I know that's a lot. And then I thought, who better? to have a conversation about just this same idea because you wrote Move Towards the Mess in 2016 and then you co-wrote with Tisha Hedra, Black and White in 2019. And you are just always the most humble person I might've ever met, but you are not just so wise and emotionally intelligent, but so great with words. And to me, those books kind of illustrated that intersection of empathy, but also you need to do something. It's kind of you to say that, Jeff, thanks. So that's kind of why I reached out to you. So no, no pressure, but hopefully we can tease out how to help the world develop empathy and be activists. How do you feel about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe talking to the wrong guy, but let's give it a shot, see what happens. Let's do it. So let's just jump right in. You know, uh, it might help to give other people some insight to you and your lens and the way you view the world. So maybe share, I don't know, a little about where you're from, your environment, family life growing up. Yeah, thanks. Um, So I'm a third generation Southern Californian. Grew up on the beach in a wonderful beach town called Ventura, which is just an hour north of Los Angeles. Love my mom and dad. They were great people. My dad was a POW in World War II. Uh, My mom worked as a legal assistant until she married dad and then she didn't work outside the home again. It was a very, in a lot of ways, a very typical white uh, family. You know, I'm 66. So this, you know, I was, I was born in 1954 and my folks were very involved politically. They, we had a lot of political conversations around our table. I remember that my whole life growing up. Uh, My mom worked uh, at the polls and all that kind of stuff. And they were conservative Republicans. And that was, so that was the context in which I grew up. But I've been on a journey since then. And uh, I don't like to speak in absolutes like this is all bad and this is all good because I don't think that's ever true. But I feel like I've slowly been moving away from that conservative Republican point of view to sort of a moderate point of view. And um, I don't disavow or disagree with everything they said, but I think um, there's some things that that agenda does not say that have become very important to me. And um, one of those things is mom and dad never talked about racism. You know, they, 
I remember because I was a little boy when Martin Luther King was active and um, they never said anything about racism. They were, they were afraid that uh, Martin Luther King was a communist and it was almost like whether he was black or white was almost incidental. Just, and what you need to understand is during the early sixties, everybody was scared to death that Nikita Khrushchev was going to press the button and launch a nuclear attack in the United States. So that sounds almost a little fanatical today, but in the early sixties, that was very mainstream thinking. Everybody was scared to death. That we were going to get involved in a nuclear war. So it's just, I just found it interesting that they never talked about Dr. King's racial views. They just talked about the fact they were afraid he was a communist and they didn't say he was, they just said we were, we were worried about that. So that was kind of the political soil in which I grew. And then um, I went to college at Pepperdine with those views largely intact. And then something very important happened. I surfed all the way through high school and college and a little bit in middle school, which is if you grew up in Southern California, a lot of in, on the beach, a lot of people do that. I met Bobby Heron. Bobby was the first black friend I ever had. I'd never had a friend. I went to the high school I went to in Ventura had 2,000 students. There was one black guy there, and I never came within wow. 50 feet of him. Our class schedules were apparently didn't cause our paths to cross. So Bobby uh, had walked onto the Pepperdine volleyball team, nationally ranked. He was a tremendous athlete. He also surfed, and he was a believer, too. And we met at an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship meeting on campus at Pepperdine. We just hit it off. We both discovered we'd like to surf, so we started surfing together. Now, there's probably an app for this today. You know, you could probably look at your phone, and if you're, you can tell you where the waves are. Well, this was in the early 70s. There was no f cell phone. A cell phone was, like, not a thing then. So if you wanted to find waves, you had to hop in the car and drive around, drive up and down the coast looking for them. So the point is, if you started surfing with somebody, you spent a lot of time in the car with them looking for waves. So I started to... Uh, began, and I say began because I still am working at understanding, I began to understand uh, what it was like for a, a black man to grow up in Southern California. And it, South gets a lot of bad press, you know, like South is racist, LA is not. Well, I tell my Southern friends, if anybody's ever trying to convince you of that, I've got two words that will silence them. The two words are Rodney King. So of course, mm. racism is a problem in LA. Um, and I started to have a sense of that talking to Bobby. And I, I'm, uh, we need to move on to know. But here, here's the summary of that. I didn't start to care about the experience of black people until I started to care about the experience of a black person. Mm. And when I started to care about Bobby and his struggles with racism in Southern California, that was the catalyst that God used to send me on a journey that eventually caused me to move beyond my Republican roots into what I feel to be a more um, biblical point of view. But it all starts, so that's, you know, when Tisha and I wrote the book, Black and White, Disrupting Racism One Friendship at a Time, that idea was rooted in my experience of becoming friends with Bobby. And, and since then, I know black people go, look, Hambrick, you know, don't expect me to do all the work for you. You've got to do this work yourself about racism. And I get that. So I've, over the years, I've tried to do the work and read and pay attention and struggle and all that stuff. So I'm trying to do the best I can at that. But that doesn't, of course, doesn't preclude from just starting to have a lot of friends who don't look like I do and uh, just to hang out with them and learn to love them. And of course, when you love somebody, you start to see the world through their eyes. So that's kind of a, 
not so short story about how I got to where I am today. No, I love all that. You mentioned that in the book in black and white, that your family didn't talk about racism. And you even said there were three institutions. You said it was the church, it was school, and it was family. Yep. It was just absent from the dinner table um, yep. or anything. Yep. And, you know, I was wondering, have you said anything to your family about that? Or how does that? Well, um, I've talked to my brother about this a great deal. My, unfortunately, my folks both passed away about 10 years ago. And in these past 10 years, I've grown considerably in this, in this area. So the answer is I haven't been able to have the kind of talks with my parents that I would like to have had. And the, uh, I don't think uh, if I was to try to find words to characterize the family system in which I grew up, I wouldn't characterize it as racist. I would characterize it as isolated. And even though, so we, at the time, you know, we didn't live too far away from Watts, you know, the Watts riots of the sixties. And uh, at the time my perception was, and you know, which I obviously learned from my parents was that this didn't have anything to do with us. It might as well have happened on Mars. Again, it took me uh, starting to care about Bobby before I realized that has a lot to do with us. And especially uh, a believer, you can't compartmentalize that away from your life. You know, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, man, if it's happening to your brother, it's happening to you. That's a good summary of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Yeah, I think you... You described it as normal, but also as not racist. I think that's a common term that we yeah. probably hear today to go with isolation or civil rights didn't have anything to do with you. But it's like there's people who still might feel that way today. Oh, well, Minneapolis is far from Atlanta or Louisville. Yep. That might as well be Mars to some yep. people, you know. Yep. What do you think when you hear somebody, specifically a white person, who still thinks that it's still a foreign concept, even in 2020? Right. Well, you know, most of the time when I hear that, I don't have direct access to the people who I, I hear say that they're on a screen somewhere and I, I don't mm. have any way of connecting with them. But when I do have a chance to enter into a conversation about that, you know, I, I love what Andy Stanley says. In some ways you have to choose. Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? And then I, I also, so I'm a quote fanatic. So you'll probably hear all sorts of quotes and it may become irritating. I don't know, Jeff. So just you can edit them out if you're going, I can't stand it. One more quote and he's out of here. A two-hour interview ends up being 35 minutes because I couldn't stand the quotes. <laughs> and then my son, who's also named John, we call him JD. He was actually commenting on my parenting style a long time ago, but this quote I'm about to share with you has much broader uh, application. He said, dad, if you push too hard, you hit the off button. So thinking about Andy's quote and JD's quote, when I'm entering into a conversation with somebody who clearly says, you know, Minneapolis has got nothing to do with me. You know, Martin Luther King had nothing to do with me. What's going on in, in certain parts of the city had nothing to do with me. I'm constantly making a calculation because I believe if you push too hard to Andy and JD's point, the door slams in your face. But if you don't push hard enough, nothing redemptive enters into the conversation. So I'm constantly, I ask the spirit to guide me to find that middle ground between pushing too hard and not pushing hard enough. And that's so contextual, Jeff, you know that. You're really good at that yourself. And some people you can push pretty hard without hitting the off button. And some people you just got to be a little more measured. And it also depends, you know, are, am I talking to a believer? Am I talking to somebody who's not a believer? You know, all that stuff, it's all, it's a, 
it's such a complicated calculation. I need the spirit to help me arrive at the correct balance there. But if they're a believer and they seem open, I'll say, well, tell me, you know, I'll, I'll reference the text in 1 Corinthians 12 that we just talked about a moment ago. Tell me why you think Minneapolis, we'll just use your example, Minneapolis has nothing to do with you when in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Help me understand, because it seems to me that there's a disconnect between what Paul tells us and your attitude about what's going on up in Minneapolis. Sometimes you can get to that. Sometimes you can't. I just try, try to abandon formulas and be fully in the moment and listen carefully to the promptings of the Spirit. I think when I think about specifically believers, and I even think of the church, you know, I read um, Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. He's got a new book coming out. Uh, Divided by Faith. That's another one by Emerson. I don't know if you've read that, but it shows, I read Divided by Faith. I did not read The Color of Compromise. Yeah. So it's very similar, and it just shows the historical context of what the church has done or not done and how it has been involved. And so when I think of even people today who say racism is not a thing of the current climate, it's a thing of the past, but even in black and white, you and Tisha just searched for a random day while you're writing the book and you found no shortage of events that had just recently happened. And when people today say it's in the past, it's because they're trying to, I think you said, I'll quote you then. For all the quotes you give me for other people, I'll quote you back to you. Dang. People who don't want to talk about racism find themselves frequently having to make a conscious choice to avoid the topic. But some people do want to talk about it because it is a thing. Yeah. And even... Yep. The black church was created out of necessity so black Americans could have a safe space to go and to gather and to worship. And so it's frustrating, but also sometimes I find myself in disbelief when people think some of these things are just meant to divide people. It's no longer relevant today. It's not worth talking about because there are so many current events, not just in Minneapolis or Louisville. And if you're a believer, tying it back to, I struggle with believers. If you have a brother and sister in Christ, we are all brothers and sisters and somebody is hurting, somebody is in need. It's up to us to lean in and to show compassion, to help, to love, to lift them up, you know? Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. And move towards the mass. You encourage people to be difference makers, to be agents of change, not just to cautiously approach people, but to actually be among them, get involved in their lives, get close yep. enough to their mess. Yep. It'll soften your heart. How do we do that? What do you mean by that for us to really live our lives like that as change agents? Right. Well, I think, it, as you said, it involves being with people. I think trying to change by remote control is largely ineffective, not only in terms of affecting some sort of change, out there, but I think it also is largely ineffective in terms of allowing God to change your own heart. So that's why that book moved toward the mess. It was, I didn't use this word in the text of the book because it's a kind of a theological word and I didn't think it would have much, uh, I thought it would be too academic. But that, that book is really about incarnational ministry. And as you know, incarnation is when God became a man and entered into human culture at a specific time, specific place, that's what the incarnation is. God enters in to our context. That's what the incarnation is. I think that's the model 
for all the stuff we're talking about, Jeff, I think um, to be a change agent, you need to enter into a specific time in a specific place with specific people, a specific culture. Um, that's what God did. I think that's the great model for anybody who claims to follow Jesus. He dwelt yeah. among us. He didn't just yes. look from afar. He was yeah, that's what, you know, the, the festival of the incarnation, that's what Christmas is all about. God became a man. Mm. You know, it's so amazing. You, you, I mean, my gosh, this is the, the second person of the Trinity. We should have a huge festival. I mean, amazing. And God said, no, 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 no. When my son shows up, it's going to be in the poorest of circumstances. Mm. And that's just like, Holy cow. And I think that takes courage because I'm not batting a thousand when it comes to entering into stuff. You know, sometimes I do, sometimes I run away, sometimes I chicken out. And every once in a while, by God's grace, I get it right. But it's hard. It's going to be scary because you're leaving your comfort zone. You cannot practice the incarnation from inside your comfort zone. When I say, you know, I'm just going to hang out in my comfort zone for a while because it's, you guessed it, comfortable. And we, our culture has placed such a high priority on comfort you know I, I think that's uh that may be one of the great idolatries that 21st century western culture has created the uh, wow. the idol of comfort and i struggle with that by the way i don't i have no moral high ground to stand on in this regard but when god does stir me up and give me the grace to leave my comfort zone it's gonna be challenging because you're gonna face stuff and god's not only going to use you in that because you're you've asked him to go with you and work through you, but he's going to change you as well. But it's just a big challenge. And uh, it's much easier just to stay, you know, different people have different comfort zones, but it's much easier to stay in that comfort zone. And when you do that, you don't change anything and nothing changes you. Mm. And I think idols like comfort eventually become prisons. Mm. Those are two quotes right there. If you remain comfortable, nothing changes or the comfortability as an idol just becomes like prison. You're right. I mean, we, we get stuck in our ways. We, yeah. You mentioned discomfort. Go ahead. You were going to say something else. Well, I was going to, I was going to say the best thing you can do when you, when you determine, okay, you know what? I cannot stay in this little bubble of my comfort zone. I got to get out of here. I, I can't claim to follow Jesus out if I'm not willing to follow him out of my comfort zone. The very best thing you can do once you arrive at that conclusion is, is pray, God, I don't even know how to do this. I know you want me to leave my, my comfort zone. I have no idea what that looks like, where that takes me, who that takes me towards. So would you please orchestrate a way forward here? If you will pray that prayer, my experience, I mean, I can't speak for God, obviously, but my experience has been that when I ask God to do that, God says, got it. And all of a sudden, you know, it may take a, a minute, it may take a month, but my experience has been God will honor that prayer. And then, you know, fasten your seatbelt. It's just going to be amazing, amazing, and sometimes amazingly tough uh, journey. But you'll look back on it someday and go, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Hmm. I don't know if you would use the word uncomfortable, but you did describe Terry in one of your books. And you said it was an unlikely friendship, I think is oh, yeah. the word that you used. Um, what made you say unlikely or what about the relationship with Terry softened your heart? Yeah. So that story is about when I was living in London, England, Patty and I, my wife, we had moved there in 1992 and we, we served there for five years. I was working at a church 
And that also was one of the chaplains at King's College, University of London. So that was just like, first of all, it was an amazing place for a Southern California surfer to be I was like, what? But there we were. And we just like, I'm kind of an Anglophile. All my favorite bands and authors tend to be English. So, um, and I love London. I had visited before. It's just an amazing city. You've probably been there. And it's, yeah, folks, if you're yeah, listening, it's beautiful. You, if we ever get to travel again, uh, you should plan to go to, to London. Yeah. People may not think that cold and rainy is beautiful, but no, it is definitely a beautiful oh, place yeah. to see. Oh, know? yeah. So anyway, I was working at this church, and um, Brits don't call it downtown. They call it central London, but it was in central London, and uh, we had a soup kitchen on site. So we were, we were on the map in terms of the homeless and hungry community. People were always coming by. To, you know, we had a soup kitchen, like I said, and people were getting fed, and we pastors at that church. Part of our job was just to interface with the people God brought along the way. So I get to the office one morning and the receptionist goes, Hey, John, there's a guy in your office. His name's Terry. And he is really angry. And I said, well, thanks a lot for letting a really angry guy into my office. <laughs> I don't think I said that, but I think that's what I was thinking. Truth be told. <laughs> so I didn't know what to expect. So I walk in there and there's Terry and Terry is a gay Irishman who has been on ecstasy all night in the dark side of the London club culture and he was crashing and you know I don't know if you know anything about I don't know a lot about ecstasy but I know when you're crashing from ecstasy if you don't get more ecstasy you just get really angry so here's this guy he's crashing he's in my office he's gay he feels like he's in enemy territory but he feels like he needs help so he's there anyway because he thought Christians hated gay people which obviously is not true but that's what he thought mm. So um, right off the bat, and I'm half Irish, so I, you know, I've got a lot of Irish genes and I spent a lot of time in Ireland when we were over there in London. So I will not insult the Irish country by attempting to recreate an Irish accent because <laughs> that would just be a mistake. Uh, but he looks at me just royally hacked off. And he said, the first thing out of his, he says, my name's Terry and I'm gay, you know. Clearly, he thought I was going to run out of the room screaming, like, oh, my gosh, there's a gay man in my office. What am I going to do? And I said, oh, that's cool. It's nice to meet you, Terry. And then he says something along this line. You know what I don't like about you Christians? You're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I said, um, you know, Terry, you're right. We are. And the reason... I'm a Christian is I'm trying, I hope, I am hoping that Jesus will heal me of my hypocrisy. Absolutely true. He was looking for a fight and I said those things instead. And so uh, we kind of moved past the anger that day and he started coming by all the time and we would talk and sometimes he'd be high, sometimes he'd be crashing, but I just asked God for help and I tried to love him every time I saw him. And I saw some good things happen in Terry's life. You know, he was living on the streets because, you know, ecstasy is pretty expensive. So he didn't have a lot of money to eat or pay rent or stuff. And uh, I just saw God start to help him out. And at one point he even got a job. Uh, one of the cool things about London, if you ever go, they have those red double-decker buses, which are just a lot of fun, especially if you can ride in the, in the second story. The lower story is just like riding a bus in the States, but <laughs> you get up on that second story and ride around London. It's just very cool. And Terry got a job as a conductor on one of those buses. And I just thought, man, this is so cool. His life's starting to come together. And you know, we hadn't talked about him. He wasn't ready to talk about becoming a Christian. 
although he knew I would love to talk about that someday when he was ready, but we hadn't talked about that. But we were talking about him just stopping sabotaging himself. And so I was so encouraged. And um, I'm leaving out a lot of details. And then one day, Terry just dis- disappeared. And uh, I don't know what happened. I, I never saw him again. I don't know if he went back to Ireland. I don't know if he died. Um, I tried to call the transportation authority and, you know, they, they had confidentiality rules, so they couldn't tell me whether Terry showed up for work. The bus I knew he was on, you know, the, the bus lines, I went there and no Terry and nobody knew anything about him. And so uh, I never saw him again. And I, to this day, I don't know what happened. But um, that was so important for me. Again, Terry, this is back in the 90s, right? Terry was really the, well, actually the second gay man that I befriended. And again, I don't mean to load up Terry with all the, you know, you've got to help me learn all this stuff. I'm not trying to do that, but I just, I, I learned to love Terry, even though uh, he certainly wasn't looking for that initially. And it changed me again, again, of course that, that story, I didn't have a choice. It wasn't about me. (laughs) It wasn't about me leaving my comfort zone. It was about God sending a person into my comfort zone and saying, well, what are you going to do with this guy? Because he's right in your office right now. Mm-hmm. So that was very important to me in terms of my growth. And I, I, um, I wish I had a happy ending to that story, but I don't have any ending to that story. But still, even almost 30 years later, your heart is still not the same after meeting Terry and getting close to Terry and absolutely loving Terry where he was. Absolutely. Which mm-hmm. is at the risk of stating the obvious. That's what, that's what God does with us. I, and I, I hate that. I hate it when I talk to a non-Christian or a street person or somebody out there, whatever it is. And um, oh, and by the way, I'm not suggesting all gay people are drug addicts. They're not. Most gay people are very accomplished. You know, really classy folks. So I don't mean to create that connection. That just happened to be that one individual's situation. But I hate it when people say, "Why well, I, I got to get my act together before I go to church?" Mm. And that's that is that is bad news that has nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel is all about, you don't have to do anything to come to church, dude. You don't even need to dress up. You don't need to stop smoking dope. You don't need to stop sleeping around. None of that. Just take a step toward Jesus right here, right now. Don't change a thing. Just come. And I hate it when people don't get that. You said, um, man, there's just so much there. (laughs) Uh, but about Terry, you didn't have to move to go towards Terry. He showed up, but you do. One thing I love about uh, your books is at the end of each chapter, there's some questions, you know, think about some of these things, how they apply to yourself, to your life. And one of the questions I think at the end of that chapter was, have you ever served at a soup kitchen or do you know a homeless person, you know, because I think so many people would say, okay, well, how do I go and find a Terry? Because a Terry isn't showing up into my home or office or something, you know? I mean, what would you say to someone for ways of how they can proactively go find a Terry? Yeah. Well, the good news there is that, you know, a city of refuge in Atlanta, Atlanta mission, and on and on and on. If you have told God, hey, I'm ready to leave my comfort zone and move in that direction, there's some unmissable destinations there. All you got to do is Hop online, check out City of Refuge, check out Atlanta Mission, 
and you'll figure it out. If you want to figure it out, you will figure it out because there's plenty to do and they're right there, unmissable. Yeah, for sure. And then I think maybe this is a poor assumption on my part, but I picture people saying, well, I don't have the margin. I don't have additional time for some other hobby or weekly commitment or, you know, something like that. What would you say to someone who would be missing out on a relationship like a Bobby even or a Terry or somebody who's different from them? Well, there's a bunch of stuff you could say. And again, like we mentioned a few minutes ago, it's so contextual, you know, it's not formulaic. You got to just be fully present and paying attention to the person with whom you're speaking. And God may prompt you to do something entirely different with person A than God will do with person B. But that said, two things that are possible amongst all the things you might say. And if the spirit prompted you to be a little, a little uh, more assertive, I may say, well, that's interesting. You got, you don't have time to do this. Just remind me again, how, how many hours did you spend playing video games last week? Or how, <laughs> how many hours of, like Patty and I love, I, we were busy when the West Wing was on TV the first time. I don't know what we were doing, but we missed it. So it's on Netflix now. So we're watching a couple, three episodes of West Wing every night, just loving it. That's just a personal aside. Has nothing to do with anything. Probably another boring detail in the life of John <laughs> Hamrick. Perfect. So I might be assertive and say, well, tell, help me to understand. You know, you say you don't have time to go to the Atlanta Mission or City of Refuge but you do have time to play video games or there's nothing wrong with video games. There's nothing wrong with watching Netflix at all, but I'm just saying what, what, let's just look at that and tell me how you make sense of that reality in your life. Or another thing you might say to somebody who's saying, you know, I just have, I don't know if I have the time struggling with that. I say, um, cause people that are energized, okay, it's time to practice incarnational ministry. I'm just going to go there and do all the things. It, sometimes I say, you know what? Calm, calm down just for a second here. If you say I'm going to volunteer 10 hours a week at Atlanta Mission or City of Refuge or wherever else is, and you already have a full-time job, maybe you have a family, you know, maybe you have a full life, here's probably what's going to happen. You might barely just make the 10-hour target the first week, but then the second week you're going to go, that was 10 hours dang, I don't, I can't do that again. You might do five hours. And then, and then the guilt starts to set in, you know, like, oh man, I said, I was going to do 10 hours. I did five hours week number two. And, and the guilt will grow. And here's the crazy thing about that. It will extinguish the very behavior you were trying, trying to create in your life. And people that start with two big things, like I'm going to do this 10 hours a week, Usually what happens is fast forward a month or so and they're not doing anything anymore because they felt so guilty about it. We tend to run away from things that make us feel guilty, right? So I say, let's just do a work around all that stuff. And instead of starting 10 hours a week, why don't you start with something ridiculously simple and easy? And I don't know what that, you know, maybe we're talking about a half hour now. How you do a half hour of volunteer work, I don't know. We're just talking about abstractions. We're not talking about realities. So I don't know what that looks like. But the point is start small and build. So let's say you can handle a half hour of whatever it is. Well, a half hour a week, you know, at the end of the week, you go, dang, I did that half hour. Let's do that again. And you're feeling positive about it. You know, those endorphins that that your brain releases into your system, you know, those are flowing around because you hit the target you were shooting for. And then maybe after a month of a half hour a week, you go, you know, I think I, I think I could maybe handle an hour a week. So the point is, if you start too ambitiously, you will run the risk of extinguish the very behavior you were trying to encourage. Whereas if you start small and build, it increases the likelihood that you will actually, uh, that 
volunteering will actually become a part of your lifestyle. So those are a couple of examples about how I, how I might respond. It just depends on the, the person in the moment and what the spirit's prompting. Sorry, that was like a three hour answer for a 10 second question. No, not at all. I mean, you talk a lot about guilt in the book as not being a good motivator. And that, that kind of ties back into our desire to not be uncomfortable. You know, we want to do everything we can to maintain our comfort and what we are accustomed to or prefer. It's those uncomfortable feelings that we don't know what to do with, or it takes vulnerability, takes humility. Yeah, exactly. I feel like guilt, metaphorically, guilt is like physical pain. It's great for a short-term discourager of behavior. So like, that's why, you know, if you stick your hand in the fire, you know, the pain makes you move your hand out of the fire. But if your hand hurts all the time, it has nothing to do with the fire. Well, that means there's some sort of disease in your hand. I think that's the exact same thing mm-hmm. when it comes to guilt. Guilt may keep you temporarily from doing something stupid, but if you're guilty all the time, there is a spiritual disease loose in your system. Cause I know God doesn't want us to feel guilty. And furthermore, guilt's just a lousy motivator. What I've discovered is guilt is powerful enough to make me feel bad. It is not powerful enough to change the way I live. If I'm going to change the way I live, I need a stronger motivation. And that motivation has something to do with God's love, not guilt. So I am chronic guilt. I'm like, dude, that is sick. You need to stop everything and figure out what that's about because it's probably killing your spiritual life right now. So we're talking about going and serving. And that would be the activism. You know, that would be, let's do something. Let's take some action. But you also mentioned that if you lead with grace, you're going to get around these lifestyles, let's say, of a Terry. If you lead with change your ways, you're never going to get to offering grace. You won't even get to be around people like Terry because they'll write you off, like he said, as another judgmental Christian, and he'll be gone about your life. And that's the activism with empathy. It's not going to serve at City of Refuge or Atlanta Mission with the Savior complex to go fix or to change or to bring the solutions is for us to have that empathetic heart to get to know that there are Terry's in this world. You know, you talk a lot about not using ought or should whenever you talk to people because it will push them away. Yep. That's well said, Jeff. And it's actually absolutely right. Did you think of that when you were meeting Terry or was it that was just naturally in you? Did you have to fight that? Or what would you say to people who definitely want to should and ought everybody they see because of what they think or believe? I think that's, you know, some people have that. I, my early Christian days, I was exposed to some very legalistic teaching, which really messed things up for a while. So I have to, I have to take care of my soul so that I don't revert to those legalistic ways, which are not part of the gospel. They're part of a human effort at self-justification. And uh, so I have to, I have to consciously make sure I'm not being motivated by the wrong things. And sometimes that's a conscious decision. You're in the moment, you're going, okay, I feel that should or ought exerting pressure on myself. And I got to say, no, this is not about should or ought. This is about loving people. And sometimes it just happens. You know, you've practiced it so long, it just kind of happens. The learned behavior, it's like, so I'm a guitar player. Guitar players practice scales which is intentional and it's hard work and, you know, you got, it's not fun, 
But if you practice enough scales and when it's your turn to do a solo in a song, you're not thinking about, oh, I got to play this F scale. You're, it's such a part of you that you're just in the moment and you're playing something. And you're not thinking about scales. You're just thinking about feeling the song and playing. If you're not a musician, that, not you, but anybody who's listening to this, uh, that may not land with you at all. But if you're a musician, you know what I'm talking about. If you practice enough, it's time to play. You're just in the zone. And I think that is analogous in some ways to this conversation. If you practice enough, if you're close enough to Jesus, if you're paying enough attention to grace, doesn't mean you'll never have to remind yourself. It doesn't mean you'll never have to play scales, so to speak. But sometimes when you're in the moment, you're in the zone and the spirit's just flowing through you. You're not thinking about scales. You're just thinking about the song. Does that make sense? That's heavy. Well, it's that vulnerability. It's that making myself less and not worrying about how I feel or what I think and just being in the zone. I think that's why I think it's heavy. It's, it's literally how can I put others first or loving others first over what does it look like? How uncomfortable am I? What will people think? Um, We don't want to use this idea of should or ought when we go and serve somewhere, when we meet a Terry or any person, but there's this other, some people may not go and be around a Terry because of what somebody else who sees them might think about them. Does that make any sense? So if you're, you might not go to meet a Terry because there's other Christians in your life who might say, why are you around Terry who is a gay person? And they might judge you. And so you might not want to go be around Terry for fear of being in associated with Terry. Yeah. That's just, that's a, Andy talks about the Andy Stanley. He says, and rightfully so he says, Jesus never worried about what religious people would think when they saw him with some really sketchy people. He never spent one second worrying about that. And I'm trying to follow his example. I think, again, like we said a few minutes ago, I think fear, uh, fear-based behavior interferes with the kind of thing we need to be doing in a very contentious culture. Maybe this is more uplifting, but this is probably that same idea. I love this hot dogs and prayers. Oh yeah, um, Leroy. That is the epitome of maybe what's on my mind. Of I don't care what people will think, and I don't care who these people around me are. I'm going to go there and just set up camp and dwell, and I just love that story. Maybe what's the two-minute version, or if it's 10 minutes, I would love to hear that too. So my friend Leroy and his wife Janelle moved to a challenging part. It's called Capital View, and I haven't been down there in a while. Maybe it started to gentrify which is a whole nother conversation. I don't know. But when Leroy and Janelle moved to Capitol View, it was, it was one of those neighborhoods where there's a lot of drug dealers on the street and a lot of prostitutes and a lot of homeless people. It was, it was a very challenging neighborhood. So Leroy and Janelle, who are believers, were trying to figure out, well, what do we do? You know, we see all these people walking by our house. You know, what do we do? So they said, every Sunday at five o'clock, they're going to cook a bunch of hot dogs set up a card table on the intersection just down from their house, which was kind of where all the stuff was happening. And they put this little cardboard sign, like, you know, some of the hand-drawn signs that you see when people are marching, you know, is this one, it was not a fancy sign at all. And they taped it to the side of the card table. It said hot dogs and prayers. And as the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the homeless people were walking by to say, Hey, you want a hot dog? And people would take it and then, Hey, can we pray for you? And so for the first few weeks this happened, Nobody wanted any prayers. They said, yeah, I'll take the hot dog, but I don't need any of your prayers. 
But Leroy and Janelle, maybe a couple of friends, kept showing up at this intersection every Sunday at five. And it was so cool because at first, like I said, people only wanted the hot dogs, had no interest in anybody praying about anything for them. But slowly they said, yeah, thanks for the hot dog. And by the way, and it's just like in a small group, you know, it's your new small group. If you've ever been in a small group and it's new, you're not sure if you can trust anybody there. So when it's prayer time, you say, you ask for prayers for your grandma's cat because you're not about to <laughs> tell people what you really need because you're afraid you'll be judged or something. So you start out with praying for, I'd like you to pray for my grandma's cat. And then you kind of see how that goes. And then, you know, maybe you'll start to get a little bit more real. I get that. That's the same thing that happened on the intersection in Capitol View. You know, first no prayers. Then they started, yeah, you can pray for me, pray for my grandma's cat. And then Leroy and Janelle kept showing up, no judgment, no, no weirdness. And they just slowly started to trust Leroy and Janelle. And they started to say, Hey, well, actually, you know, I owe somebody two grand for some dope I bought from them and I'm in trouble. Could you, I need prayers about that? So anyway, uh, long story short, God used that to launch a whole ministry, which is a whole nother story we don't have time for now, but I'll start it with this card table and a stack of hot dogs in this cardboard sign that said hot dogs and prayers on the intersection in Capitol View. Love that. But it's that showing up week after week. It's not yeah. just the one time, you know? Yes, it's a, it's a concrete example of people leaving their comfort zone and asking God to use them. And a great point I think you just made, Jeff. You know, that doesn't happen instantaneously. It takes a while. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm going to do that next Saturday for an hour. And it's like, you know, it's like the guy who does 10 sit-ups and then runs into the bathroom and looks in the mirror and wonders why he doesn't sit <laughs> back there. This doesn't happen that way. You know, you get, it's a long game, this incarnational ministry stuff. It doesn't happen one time. Yeah. I mean, God can do anything and there's the occasional exception, but the norm is you got to keep showing up for a while before you're going to start to see God do anything because it just takes a while. It's like in a small group, you know, it takes a while to trust people with your real prayer requests. Yeah. So the takes, same for us to trust people. It yeah. Takes, yeah. It just yeah. takes time. You know, you've traveled a lot. You've lived in California. You said England. So in those places you've lived, but I know you visited where South Africa, Pakistan, Ireland, whether they're on missions yep, yeah. or not. Yeah. And you've seen others, I'll use this word others with quotes in a way that many people just read about or see, you know, in the news. You've seen it up close firsthand in their environment. Yep. And you didn't have the choice of being uncomfortable or not. You were there. Yeah. And I love that. But I think I mentioned this before, you know, I don't think that people have to see it that close to even know that it exists. Mark Henderson, uh, you know, Mark, he said this idea that I've been thinking about that we don't have to see human trafficking in action to know that it is a major problem or something that breaks our heart. You don't have yep. to see someone get taken. How can we foster not just empathy and activism, but curiosity that there is this idea of people out there living in ways or environments that aren't like ours, that don't look like our environment, or they weren't raised with a family life like ours, or they don't have certain things like ours, just to even plant the seed that that might exist. And then maybe empathy can grow. Or do people really need to see it firsthand to have that? Just my opinion might be wrong. I think sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes it, it's kind of a question of what, what needs to happen. Like if we're talking about John Doe, just some guy out there, the question is what, what needs to happen for 
for this to get on John Doe's radar, for him to become aware of the human suffering, whatever type of human suffering we're talking about. How, what, what does it take for him? What does it take for that pain to pierce his armor and get into his heart to a point where he starts to become more empathetic and he starts to do something or to use your word to become more of an activist. So I think, I think we've kind of built protections around our heart and some of the, some of the shields are super thick and it's going to take something pretty powerful to get through. Some of them aren't that thick, you know, and it's not going to take that much. So I think the more important question is what is it going to take to get through to somebody's heart? And maybe that's a, Maybe that's actually getting on a plane. Maybe it's reading an article. Maybe it's like me, you know, way back in the early 70s, meeting Bobby. That changed my life. Yeah. Just depends. I don't remember if it was you or Tisha who said this particular quote, but you spend a lot of time saying, we just need to talk about things. So, yeah, you can read articles, you can, or you can go there firsthand. But if you just talk about it with people, around you, whether it's like-minded or not like-minded, but it's not always easy. It takes um, courage. It takes vulnerability. And I can't remember if it was you or Tisha who said somehow tying it back to racism, not indulging in personal racism became the upper limit of Americans' obligations to one another. And I had to reread that at least three times because I was just like, wow, that's the upper limit of just avoid it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to see it. And you... That was Tisha, by the way. Tisha wrote all the profound things in the book that Tisha wrote, pretty much. <laughs> I totally believe that. Uh, Tisha, you are awesome if you're listening. And she I is echo, awesome, I'll tell you what. Echo everything John said. But you, you two were talking about this idea of dismantling or disrupting racism personally through friendships, you know? And one of you said, just walk across the street and knock on a neighbor's door, you know, and just get to know somebody. We don't have to go far. Yeah, even in our isolated places, if I think of California or when you were growing up, you were a child, you might not have known, but there couldn't have been 100% white people with your economic status, with your Christian worldview. There is someone that I'm sure that we can all find. But what does it look like? I think the quote was, millions of us can march across the street and invite our neighbor over for dinner. What do yeah. you think that actually looks like? Do you believe people would do that? What would someone say if you were the neighbor and somebody walked across and said that to you? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think it can start there. The thing is we don't need to march. Not everybody needs to march in the street. Everybody needs to cross the street to connect mm. with their neighbor. And um, I think that is available to everybody right now. I think I'm 100% convinced of this, and this is based on personal experiences, based on scripture, it's based on everything I know. Does God want you to go to another country or to the other side of the city? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But here's what I know. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, there's somebody within a five-minute walk of where you live who needs your love. And maybe rather than thinking about going all that way, maybe you start by taking a five-minute walk to your neighbor who just lost their job or just lost their spouse or just lost their health or struggling with depression. I mean, I guarantee anybody who's listening to this, you don't have to walk more than five minutes to find somebody in whom God wants you to invest. You know, you said when Christians don't love people well, others will assume that God is not loving 
and that the church is a place where the unloving gather to worship their unloving God. Now I'm thinking of unbelievers, yeah. somebody like a Terry, and when they see Christians behaving this way, not embracing or going to meet those who aren't like them and being compassionate, I just think maybe, I don't know what the word is, if it's credibility or authenticity, that that's at risk for what the church might lose if we don't do something. You know, it makes me think of Jesus not calling the qualified, but qualifying the called. Just act. Don't wait. Just yeah, that's good. get involved, that's good you know? Job. just. I well, I mean, know. everything you said follows from, again, we're back to Paul and Corinthians. We're the body of Christ. I can't remember who said this originally, but we are Jesus to our unbelieving neighbors. Mm. They will conclude wow. the things they believe about Jesus will be caused by our behavior. And if we're, you know, unloving, standoffish, refuse, refuse to leave our comfort zones, just turn church into this holy huddle where we, you know, the self-righteous gather to congratulate themselves on their moral superiority. If that's the way we behave, people will conclude that's the way God is because we are Jesus to those people. But there's even some Christians, I think, who might want that safety or comfort or, I don't know, maybe that's poorly phrased, but I think of Sung Chung Ra who says there's a triumphalistic view of Western Christianity and there's a view of the need to lament. And like you said earlier, it's not to categorically describe all Christians in two camps, but personally I see this idea of a Christian who wants to say, if I work hard enough, I can achieve, or he will provide, or he will fix it, versus leaning into this world is broken, this world is a mess, this world is sad, but that's not in a hopeless manner. That's not to say that I've given up. That's to say that that's the nature of this world, and I need him to help me with this sorrow, with this broken heart, you know, and I wish, this is my personal opinion, more would lean into the reality, the humility, the vulnerability of lamenting to say it is broken. We need something, you yeah. know, um, versus, well, we can fix it. And this is where perfection is, or you have to be perfect to come to church. No, that's not the case at all, you know, but I'm not a biblical scholar. That's my view of lament. But you talk a lot about lament in the book. What does it mean to you or why is it so important? I think lament is important. Tisha has done some groundbreaking work in thinking about lament. So I'll try my best to represent her views, um, what I've learned from her. But I think lament's important for a number of reasons. One, it's honest. I think uh, it's honest and it reflects the reality that God and can handle our anguish and complaints and even blame sometime. You know, if you read David in the Psalms and the other authors that wrote the Psalms, they um, don't pull any punches sometimes. They accuse God of being asleep, of not caring, of turning a blind eye. And um, the wonderful thing about that is that that doesn't anger God. It doesn't drive him off. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you said that to me. Well, I'm going to squish you. I think that's what a lot, I think that's the view of God that a lot of people operate with. If you tell God what you really think, God's going to squish you. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say even some Christians think that. Yeah, yeah. And lament is about, I trust God enough to be able to tell him the truth. And it's about authenticity. And it's about inviting God in 
to our pain and the pain that we are carrying on behalf of other people. And I love that God's big enough to do that and that he loves us enough to do that. So lament is, if we had to sum it up in a sentence, which is hard for us preacher types, why use a sentence when you can use a half hour? Sorry. <laughs> um, I think lament at its core is inviting God into our suffering. And I think he always accepts that invitation. I don't know. It's the same old theme. I keep thinking of this uncomfortability. People want to be comfortable, you know? People just are afraid to admit that we are suffering. So, so much is happening. It's an election year. Uh, so much has happened even over the last, I don't know, six months with this pandemic. And I'm asking you about these books. One of them you wrote, Move Towards the Mess, maybe almost five years ago. So, when I read this book and I was skimming through it again before this talk, so much of it is still relevant and needed even today. You know, it feels like we're still waiting for people to invest in this pursuit of racial reconciliation. You know, whether it's we as the big C church, we as a society, I don't know if we're better or worse off than even five years ago. What would you yeah. say? I mean, that's a, that's a hard that's a hard question to answer. I think the thing I feel most comfortable about saying is we've over the decades, we have made a lot of progress, but we still have a long ways to go. That feels to me to be the most authentic, accurate thing I can say. And um, the, the vexing thing about some of the things we still have to work on is you know, racism is, as we've already talked about, there are, there are overt acts of hostility towards people that don't look like you. And, and that's a problem, still a problem. Like, like you said, you know, Tish and I just did a Google search on, you pick the date and you're going to find examples of that. But there's also this thing called systemic racism, where racism is woven into a, a culture or a system. And that is that's just as unjust as hostile overt racism. It causes misery. It dehumanizes people. It, it's unfair. It's just, it's intractable in a lot. Of, it feels that way anyway. It's so difficult. Like I was, I was speaking to a church staff in Cherokee County and they asked me to come. To, it was shortly after the book Black and White came out. And Tisha was out in Southern California, so she couldn't be there. And I thought, well, you know, before I see these folks, I'm, I'm just going to do some research on Cherokee County. And for the, you would know this, maybe some people, Cherokee County is the county kind of immediately north of Metro Atlanta. And um, I just wanted to get a sense of what was going on in Cherokee County. And I found out that the average household income of, of a black family in Cherokee County is $20,000 less than the average household annual income of a white family. And so I felt that it was important to talk about that with this particular church I was at. And it was, it was not a huge group. It was just a group of about 70 or so people. And so it could be interactive. And I just, it was almost all white people at this church, the part of the church that I talked to. And I brought that up and I said, why do you think this is you guys? And you know, it's kind of crickets, right? And I said, well, uh, there's basically two explanations for this $20,000 disparity between the annual household incomes of white people and black people. 
I was trying to jolt people off center and get them to think about this. I said, well, either the racists are right and black people are inferior, or there really is this thing called systemic racism, which unjustly penalizes people of color. So you tell me, which is it? And the discussion went from there. But uh, I, I just think uh, we have to talk about these things. And, you know, we could go on for hours with examples of this. Mm-hmm. There's somebody we both know that I was having the same conversation you just touched on. They said, I believe racism is alive and well today. This was just a few weeks ago. And so we were engaged in a conversation. And then eventually this person said, but I'm going to need somebody to show me one system, institution, or policy that is racist. And first I was thrown off because you just said it was alive. So I thought you were already on board with systemic racism. I guess you were just talking about overt racism, but okay, let's use the achievement gap in schools. That's another good one of, um, just like you were saying, income disparity. Achievement gap by racial groups almost anywhere in America. You can see a considerable drop of black and Latin students versus white and Asian students. So either you're telling me that these groups are superior or inferior to each other, something biological with these kids that are making them different, or something is happening in the system, lack of access to resources, lack of opportunities, lack of preschool leading up to school, who knows, but these are all systems or things that are going on. There's either something wrong with the person or there's something wrong with the system. And clearly, if you're a Christian, you would believe that we're all image bearers. We're all made in his image. There shouldn't be something deficient about a person, you know? Yeah, absolutely right. Well said. It seems so hard to break through and have these conversations. And here's another quote. This is probably one of my favorite quotes from the book that says, it can be difficult to align with people who seem chiefly interested in your silence. And we're... (laughs) We're so, we're arguing about how there's a problem. We'll never get to solving the problem. First, we're just arguing about whether there is a problem. And I wish we could just talk about it. Why can't we just talk about it? Let's break through that uncomfortable, uh, that fear of discomfort, you know? Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, flying up, my wiring is such that I'm an abstract thinker. So I'm always flying up to 100,000 feet in I just need to remind myself that's good, but at some point you need to drop down to sea level and to use your phrase, Jeff, and be an activist. You can't just stay up there at a hundred thousand feet, just thinking abstract thoughts. I mean, that's important for me, but you can't stop there. It needs to result in action at some point. But what I was going to say is at a high level, I understand racism as a subcategory of spiritual warfare. I think, one way to make sense of our world and our faith is that there's a a battle between good and evil and that that battle has uh, human players, but it also has stakeholders who are not human. One of the chapters in black and white, we talk about the chapter title is something like what's what, what is holding racism in place? And we make the argument in that chapter that one of the things that's holding racism in place are the, uh, principalities and powers that Paul talks about in one of his letters. You don't need to believe in this is not a core 
plank in our platform. It's just a way we make sense of what, out of what we see. So there may be some people out there, Christian people say, no, I don't think that's true. That's fine. This is not a, this is not a hill to die on. But the way I make sense of things personally is there are demonic powers at loose that are keeping racism active and that are working to subvert uh, the kingdom of God, which is constantly attempting to create justice where there is injustice. I can't make sense out of this apart from that. Mm. It's part of uh, our reality. We exist in a world where there is a colossal ongoing battle between good and evil. Of course, the good guys won, have won already because of the cross. This is like, so I, my dad, I mentioned was a World War II POW, so I'm fascinated by World War II. So here's, here we go. This is probably something that people go, why did he bring that up? So here's the deal. World War II historians will say basically World War II, the European theater, now the Asian theater is a different story. But in Europe, World War II was essentially won on D-Day, June 6, 1944, when the Allies invaded Normandy. That was the day that Germany lost the war. But it took another uh, nine months before the war actually ended. And during that time, there was something called the Battle of the Bulge, where Germany, even though it had lost the war essentially, but it launched an attack against the Allies, the Americans, the Brits, Canadians. And, and it killed a lot of uh, American soldiers, a lot. I, th I can't remember the number, like something like 10,000. That for me is the metaphor in which we exist. The war has already been won by Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. But the battle is still going on. Um, and we, we are kind of in the battle of the bulge. You know, even though Germany lost the war, they still were capable of attacking. Well, the principalities and powers have already lost the war, but they're still capable of attacking. And, you know, how long God's going to allow this to last? I don't know. Could end, you know, in John, he says, be ready. Be ready for it all to wrap up. You know, it could be in the next 10 seconds. It could be a thousand years from now. We just don't know. But that is how I make sense out of all this. Is I hope that's not an arcane example. People are going to go, why did Jeff let John ramble down that road? I don't think anybody would say anything like that. I totally get the analogy of what you're saying. If I believe that he has already redeemed my life and what he can offer to everyone, then yes, we don't have to worry about whether we will be triumphant in the end. And that's probably why I'm so passionate about choosing to lament instead of leaning into this triumphalistic idea that Soon Chung Ra is talking about. Because in my opinion, it's somebody who is trying to make sense of how they provide their own hope. They need to believe in this idea of succeeding or achieving or overcoming versus, no, we already did that. We don't have to worry about that. It will happen. Does that make any sense of? Yeah, it makes that? a lot of sense. It makes a lot um, of sense. And I, th I think you're right. Maybe let's end on a positive note. That would be nice, even though I'm over here putting down the triumphalistic approach. What's something that you've seen maybe past month, year, what have you, but something that's inspirational, that's inspiring, that has shocked you, but in a good way and given you some hope? Well, this is a, uh, something I, I just read this morning. And um, I don't know if this is a, a direct example of what you just asked, but it was an example that I just thought was wonderful. So Chris Pratt, he's an act, a Hollywood actor, and he's a Christian. He has gone public with his faith. And there was some sort of inane campaign in one of the entertainment sites that said, which Chris in Hollywood should we get rid of? 
you know, holy cow, why would, why would you even do that? I mean, that just seems mean. But anyway, Chris Pratt was getting a lot of hate because of that. And um, what I thought was really cool was, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Downey Jr. What's his first name? Robert Downey Jr. He stood up for Chris Pratt. And I have no idea what Robert Downey Jr.'s worldview is. Did I get that name right? I'm obviously not well-versed in Hollywood stuff. <laughs> no, um, that's him. But he stood up for Chris Pratt. And he said uh, on Twitter, I've got a novel idea. Why don't those of you who just decimated Chris Pratt's character delete your social media accounts, um, sit with yourself, and measure your own moral failings, and then celebrate the fact that you're a human being? You know, I, that's a complicated theological statement there, but I just thought – Robert Downey Jr. went to the aid of a Christian. I thought that was very encouraging. And um, what's Ruffalo's for? Mark Ruffalo did the same thing. Because they were, I guess they were co-stars in that last superhero movie that they all did together. But I just thought it was encouraging that two guys, I have no idea where their worldviews are, came to the defense, publicly came to the defense of a Christian. I just thought that's a good sign that maybe we're able to overcome our differences and support each other rather than just take shots at each other. So that's something that I found encouraging, and I just read about it this morning. What about now? I just have one more question. Then, uh, if yeah. you give me endless time, I'll just keep asking questions that's and fine. questions. Um, I think it was your last chapter, and move towards the mess. It was called "Do Something Now," and I would be curious to hear what you would say to people. So, since you're describing people coming to the aid of Chris Pratt, how can we? as people be better to come to the aid of people suffering from racism, whether it's systemic racism or overt racism and name calling. But in 2020, what does it look like to break away from racism and to call it out, which may mean calling out people when we see it, but still trying to love like Jesus, if we're Christians, you know, when you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yep. So what do we do? How do we, reflect that grace and truth of Jesus and love others who aren't like us, but get involved with their mess. I mean, I don't know what, what would you say to someone who is interested in starting the journey of pursuing all of that, but doesn't know where to start? Great question. There, for me, there's a very easy answer or obvious answer. Study, you know, we're, we're in the middle of an election. I think over 20 million Americans have already voted. A great first step, very timely step, is do some homework. And, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to recommend a candidate or speak against a candidate here. Instead, I'm going to say study the candidates on the ballot and view them through the lens of the, are they helping uh, the battle against racism? Are they silent or are they arraigned against racism and vote accordingly? Mm. So if you're looking for something you can do right the heck now, man, Prepare and then go vote. That is one of the most powerful things an American can do. That's a convicting thing. There are people who aren't alive today and not because they'd passed away from old age or natural causes, just for the fact that they wanted the ability to vote. Yeah. And so when I think of last election year, there were 100 million people almost, just over 90, rounded to 100 million eligible voters we're not talking about people in the population eligible voters who didn't vote and how 
whether people know it or not, there are instances, go Google it, you'll be surprised. People have won elections off of one vote. Your vote actually does matter, even if you don't think it will change your state or your municipality, your local thing, but it's, it's up to us. That is the one way that we have the chance to speak and do certain things, you know? Yeah. So I'm with you. I hope, I hope everybody out there will vote. I've mailed in my ballot. I checked the status. They've received the ballot, so I made sure that they've gotten it back. But we have to vote. Patty and I voted early. Um, I, yeah, I just think if you take seriously all the human suffering that has been engaged by protecting the rights of people to vote, protecting freedom, to say my vote's not worth much is to call into question all the sacrifices that were made on our behalf. And uh, I don't want us to do that. John, thanks for talking to me, man. I always love my time with you. Well, it's just, I love you, Jeff, and I love, I love the way you think and what you're thinking about. And I just, I'm just real grateful to be here. And I trust all the untrue, silly, arcane things that I said, I'm sure I trust you will edit them out. <laughs> Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to unpack some of what John had to say, especially when it comes to how powerful the urge can be in us to remain comfortable and how I think we really do have to fight back against that desire if anything is going to change or if we want to grow. What about you? What did you think? As always, I really do want to hear from you. Post a comment or send a message to at choose to be aware on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or you can always leave a comment on the blog at chooseawareness.org. And also, seriously, don't forget to check out the books Move Toward the Mess and Black and White. They really are worth reading. Well, that's all for this episode. Until next time, I hope you'll keep joining me in making the conscious decision to choose to be aware.